So let's read together Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. This is what Paul says to them. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want to pray. Father, Coming to such vital, central truth, I ask, Lord, you'll give us eyes to see. And I pray, Lord, that the truth of your word will cause our hearts to be lit up with love for you. And Lord, those who are really on a spiritual journey, perhaps, who don't yet know you, will see for the first time what it means to have a savior. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to just say that the backdrop to what I'm going to say today, that the Christian faith is a divisive and offensive faith to many. And that has simply been a reality all through history. Paul, um, who was a preacher first and foremost, before he was a writer, we have his letters, but his, his day job was as a preacher. And he traveled from place to place. And what he said about the experience, about him and the other apostles whose job it was to, as missionaries to travel from city to city and preach, he said that we're the aroma of Christ. We bear his fragrance. And he said that wherever we go carrying the fragrance of Christ, it's the fragrance from life to life or from death to death. And what he meant by that was that people react in entirely opposite ways to the truth and the ideas that we're presenting about this Jesus. From life to life, that it's the most amazing aroma or fragrance you've ever smelled. Or from death to death, it smells like sewage or like a rotting corpse to your nostrils. And uh, this is how divisive the Christian faith will be. It's an interesting thing that on the back of, right at the, at the beginning of um, when the COVID outbreak happened, um, my wife and I were among the early ones, the, the, uh, the pioneers of catching the thing. And um, one of the things that surprised me, because no one was talking about it at the time, was that we, had, uh, we suffered anosmia, where you cannot smell or taste, and it was really 
very depressing experience um, because I love my food, as I've told you many times. Um, but it, for me, it cleared up very quickly, but not so, much, not so quickly for my wife. And one, one experience or symptom that many people have experienced as a kind of longer, lingering problem is not so much anosmia, which is the inability to smell, but parosmia, which is where your smell can become distorted. And for some people, this has been so bad that even delicious food can smell to them like sewage and cause them to want to vomit, or actually to physically to, to, to vomit, which obviously is a massive problem. But it just shows you how the same thing can cause different reactions in different people. It's true of, of, of uh, many vegetables, isn't it? Some people just find some vegetables intolerably bitter. And I remember as a child just hating Brussels sprouts for that reason. But as you grow older, you come to realize they're one of the God's greatest gifts. And so it is that you can react in different ways to the exact same thing. And there's something about the Christian faith that's like that. And for many different reasons, we could think all day about the, we could list, make a great long list of all the offensive elements within the Christian faith. But I think in my experience, the, the number one issues are very often around the sex ethic. You know, that when, uh, when God... Um, gives to us his, his, his uh, view of the, set, of the gift that he created in sex and sets boundaries for it. That is something that some people react well to. They say this gives structure and safety to a beautiful gift. And others say, no, this is oppressive. This is suffocating. This is harmful to me to be told how I should, uh, should um, sort of practice my sexuality. The same is true around another issue, which is exclusivity. Jesus was very clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that very definite binary claim where he said it's, it's me or it's, it's nothing is in, among one of Christianity's most uh, divisive doctrines because you're saying only Jesus and there's no other option. And obviously for some, that's life because it's, well, I've discovered Christ and this is the way and suddenly I have hope. I've looked everywhere else and nothing else works anyway. So to found someone who is the way is, is a good thing. And for others, it's the reason why you say Christianity cannot possibly be true. Surely it cannot claim this exclusive truth. And if there is one thing that has the widest, um, let's say is the most widely cause most widely received cause of offense it is what i want to focus with you on today which is the biblical diagnostic of the human condition it has a powerfully divisive effect upon people what the bible has to say about humans about you and about me and our condition without jesus and it seems to me to be perhaps one of the most difficult things to convince and persuade people of because it is so divisive. Nothing triggers people more than this. Why then do we need to do this? Why not just sort of skate over some of the more difficult elements of Christianity and especially what the Bible says about humans? Why not simply just focus on the good stuff, sing about God's love and his compassion, which is all wonderful? And... Uh, I think the reason is that, look, we're all conscious that there's a problem. We're aware of a problem out there. We're aware of a problem in here. We're aware that the world is full of wicked individuals, full of wicked institutions, full of wicked groups even. But none of us are agreed on the fundamental problem that underlies the cause and the source of this wickedness in humanity. And so some blame capitalism. They say the wickedness lies in the market forces. 
and the ability of some to oppress others through power structures. Some say inequality is the fundamental problem. If we pull down the powerful and the wealthy and we elevate the poor and the weak, we'll create a utopia. Some say it's it's systems and structures, that policies are the problem, not people. People are good, but it's the, the laws that we create. Other people say it's the internet. You know, if we just rolled back the clock 30 years, we'd be back in paradise. I remember the pre-internet era. I'm old enough for that. And obviously all of these things, you know, and we could list many more, are part of contributing to the greater problem that humans experience, the wickedness of man to man, the inhumanity. And yet none of them is really the root issue. None of them is the all-explaining power or force. And therefore, the reason why I believe it's so important to start here is because you have to get an accurate diagnosis before you can ever consider a cure. I, have, um, I know somebody who, as a young woman, was diagnosed incorrectly because of chest pain with a condition called angina, which is re- reduced blood flow to the heart. And if you have angina, then you are at greater risk of having a heart attack, a fatal heart attack. And so she lived for decades under this, the weight of this wrong diagnosis that caused her to live a very um, sedate life and not to exert herself too much and affected life and affected her quality of life until in later years discovered that the diagnosis had been wrong all along. And you can see how a wrong diagnosis can actually make the problem worse. Or a lack of a diagnosis is is a problem also. You know, if you were to go to Richmond Park and to sit in the grass for long enough, at some point a tick will attach itself to your body and begin to feed on your blood. And uh, these ticks often have fed on deer blood before they feed on yours. And so they carry, very often they carry, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease. And Lyme disease can sit in your system for a long time and progressively cause symptoms that are difficult to, to quantify. You will feel tired and headachy. You'll feel muscle and joint pain. And you'll feel a kind of general um, lethargy. And you might go to the doctor with these symptoms. You say, I've got muscle and joint pain. I feel tired. I feel headachy. And the first question will be, do you have young children in the house? And the doctor will struggle to bring an accurate diagnosis to bear on these symptoms because they're so vague and they're so hard to quantify and to specify. And so people can live with this disease undiagnosed until it gets worse and progressively worse. But actually, it's incredibly easy to treat. It's one course of doxycycline that treats the thing and it doesn't cost very much money at all. And suddenly you're cured. And so it seems to me that bringing to bear an accurate diagnosis on the problems that we face is one of the most important things that we can do and reason why the Bible's diagnosis as a human condition has to be understood and reckoned with. But why is it then so offensive? And the answer is very clear to me. It's because the Bible has the most penetrating, damning, non-flattering, thorough indictment of humanity and of individual humans of any religion or worldview. You compare with other religions. Essentially, the assessment of humans is that you're a mixed creature. There's good and there's bad in you. And the whole purpose of religious 
endeavor is to help you to suppress the bad and elevate the good. And so you have the image within Islam of the good demon, the, the demon and the angel on each shoulder and the, the, the battle inside of you. Or you have the, the forces of the yin and yang. Or you have this kind of sense of a balance or of an equilibrium and the need to kind of overcome evil with good that exists within most religions. But the Christian faith has a much more damning view. It says, no, we, we, we're entirely tainted. And that obviously flies in the face of, face of all other faiths. It also flies in the face of our culture at large. If there's one idea that controls our view of humanity right now, it's the elevation of the self. That's why Carl Truman, when he released his book last year, it was called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If there's one doctrine that controls the Western mind above all, it's the emergence of what John Tyson calls project self. The celebration, the recognition, the adoration, the acceptance, the display of myself to the world. And so the, the basic philosophy that's guiding the way we think about humans in the West right now is one of self-discovery and self-love and self-display. I think, I very, I think that... Um, by the way, that I think Disney films are, are, are always on the pulse of the culture. And uh, one of the great joys of fathering, besides all those symptoms I was describing earlier, is that you have to sit and watch many Disney movies. Um, but it's interesting to do cultural analysis with them. For example, Moana, which uh, came out a few years ago, um, essentially the story of this, this heroine from the Pacific Islands who seeks to um, overcome the evil monster Takar by putting the heart back into Tafiti, the island Tafiti, the goddess Tafiti, discovers at the end of the film that the monster Takar is the goddess Tafiti, but the worst version of herself. And so sings to her this song, which I won't sing to you now, but says, I've crossed the, the horizon to find you. I know your name. They've stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. I know who you are. So the message is you can be saved and you can, the world can be saved if we just remember who we are. And I put the goodness back inside you. And of course, there's some resonance with the Christian story, one of redemption, of restoration of all things. But it's also wrong in the sense that, you know, this idea is oh, the evil is something foreign to you and, and you just need to remember who you really are and the world will be put to right. Or Encanto, another recent Disney film set in Colombia where this family all have these magical powers except for one girl, Mirabel, who is just an ordinary girl. And as things begin to go wrong in the family, in the village, it's only when Mirabel discovers and loves herself for who she is that salvation comes to the village. And the message could not be clearer. The world is saved when you love yourself and when you are who you're really meant to be, when the real you shines out. That's salvation. And Disney's preaching the message powerfully to our children because they're trying to stay on the pulse of culture as, as they always do. And it seems to me, therefore, that against the culture in which we live, the Bible's diagnosis, this damning indictment of humanity and of your heart, is a jarring, discordant note that sounds horrible to the ears. Like when you smash all the keys on the piano at the same time. And I want to ask, what is the diagnosis and why is it ultimately the, the only reason we can have hope when we understand this and accept this? 
And in a nutshell, what this passage tells us, and we're really focusing on the early part here, is that without Jesus, you were dead, you're a slave, and you're condemned. You're dead, you're a slave, and you're condemned. And let me just unpack for you carefully what those things mean before we help, I help you to see why this is actually a good thing to see rather than a bad. He says, without Jesus, you're dead. And this is how Paul opens the passage. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. This is not a threat. This is not a kind of a threat to do with your future. This is an assessment about your present state without Jesus. So the doctors come, they check your vital signs, they pronounce the time of death, and issued a certificate and taken the 50-pound check. Did you know doctors are paid for signing a death certificate? Seems to be a perverse incentive to me not to resuscitate people. But anyway, that's, what, that's what's being said here. You're dead. Now, immediately, you can see how this diagnostic of humanity is going to meet with opposition. It's unlikely to be accepted because the obvious rebuttal is, well, no, I'm not. Look at me. I'm not dead. I'm alive. And I feel life surging through me. But of course, you have to understand what Paul means here when he uses the language of death. What does he mean? And he doesn't mean that you're physically dead, though that will certainly come. He means rather what I would think of as a kind of spiritual death. And it stems all the way back from the earliest pages of the scriptures. When in the Garden of Eden, God says to Adam and Eve, when he points to the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil in the middle of the garden. He says, don't eat of this tree because the day you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And as you know, Adam and Eve are found chomping on the fruit of this tree, having ignored the curse or the threat that, that hung over it. And when God deals with him, what does he do? He curses them, he curses the land, he curses the man, he curses the woman. But they're still not dead. They don't die for many years subsequent to it. So what does it mean when he said, on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die? Well, what happened to them when, on the day they ate of it was that they were exiled from the garden. And God did not allow them to come back into the Garden of Eden. And you have to understand within the biblical narrative, the Garden of Eden is not just a garden, it's a temple. It's a place of God's presence. Which is why it says in the early part of Genesis 3 that God was there walking in the cool of the day. It's a temple. And therefore they died in this way, that they were exiled from the presence of God. They began to experience alienation from God and a distance from Him. And that's what the Bible says death is, because God is life. And to be apart from God, to be alienated from God, not to know God, is to be spiritually dead, even while your body has a pulse. John Stott, a preacher from the last century, he wrestled with this, and he says, how could we accept this to be true? Because when we look around ourselves, we see, we see people at the pinnacle of their lives. We see athletes at their peak physical performance. We see scholars at their peak academic performance. We see film stars at their, the peak of their personality and charisma. So how can, how can we say that death is the diagnostic of the human condition? And then he says this, ah, but they have no life. And you can tell it. They're blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, deaf 
to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. If you were a Christian now, at one point, this was a true description of you, wasn't it? You were dead to Jesus. He meant nothing to you. And Paul further explicates this when he says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. This is what the explanation of this diagnosis of death. I know that these, these words have very little purchase in the modern mind. No one really worries about words like trespasses and sins. And sin, although it still exists in our vocabulary, is a devalued word. In the book Unapologetic, Francis Spufford said that sin has become associated with basically kind of naughty things. Like we can talk about eating ice cream as sinful, or chocolate truffles, or you describe certain types of lingerie as sinful, or sex toys, or cocktails. Or all these, the word can be attached to all these indulgences. And he said that the reason is that sin encodes a memory of ancient condemnation, but a distant memory. Just enough of a memory to add a zing of conscious naughtiness to whatever the pleasure in question. I think that's a perfect description of how people react to the word these days. It seems to be kind of just, just enough guilt to make you feel joy in whatever you're indulging. But what Paul says here when he describes humanity as dead in trespasses and sins is something deeply, deeply penetrating and accurate about the human condition. That's why he uses these two words. The one word trespass means a deviation from the path. It's when you know the law and then you stray from it. The other word sin means missing the mark, like firing an arrow at a target but missing it. And taken together, they incorporate the breadth of the wickedness of the human heart, that we have sins of commission, where we actively do things we know are wrong, and sins of omission, where we fail to do that which is right. And no one can escape the verdict that you have done both of those, that there are things in your life that you know you've done that are wrong, and there are also things that you fail to do that are right. And every day, even every moment of every day, we fall short of the target, don't we? That our lives are not perfectly righteous. And so Paul says, you are dead. He then goes on and describes our state without Jesus as being his slaves. He says... He speaks about being in trespasses and sins in which he once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And what he's describing here, when you take all these phrases together, he's describing a state of slavery that humans find themselves in by nature. Again, again, this runs square into the face, contradicts the cultural narratives that we have grown up in. Because it, and in a sense, it, it feels to us to make no sense whatsoever. For this reason, that we live in the age of unparalleled personal freedom. You live in a day and an age in which you enjoy more personal freedoms than anyone has ever enjoyed at any other place or time in history. 
because you are free from all obligations on where to live, on what to do with your life, on who you can love. No one can tell you and no one judges you if you make your own choice and you choose your own path. That's the culture in which we live. And more than that, we're free. We're, we're, we're free, more free than we've ever been from any religious structure to control or oppress or manipulate us in our day and age. No one will judge you if you say I'm an irreligious person. We recently passed the 50% mark of people who claim to not believe in any God whatsoever. And I always, I always say, listen, this is a new phenomenon in history. Most people in history have grown up with the weight of expectations and obligations, with the structures of, of appropriate ways of living and paths that are okay to take. And even, you know, even unknowingly have felt constrained by those structures in a way that the world imposed identity upon you. And for the first time in history, humans have begun to press the boundaries of these things to the maximum so that you are born and raised in a context in which you really can choose whatever path you want in life. I think it's fair to say that we've come to the kind of climax moment, pinnacle really, of the Western pursuit of personal liberty. And it's really the central ethic that we celebrate. It's there in the United States, their national anthem, the land of the free and the home of the brave. So precious a value is it that they've built a statue so that everyone who sails across the ocean, the first thing they'll see is Lady Liberty carrying the torch of personal freedom. The French have their motto from the revolution, don't they? Of liberty, egality, fraternity, which means Liberty or freedom, equality, brotherhood. And the British, they outdo them all because we have the Magna Carta, signed in 1215, more than 800 years ago, that established your freedom under law. You think if there's one guiding principle that destroys and overrules every other moral value and ethic that exists in the Western world, it is the value or the principle of personal liberty and freedom. So how can the Bible say that you're a slave? And the answer, it seems to me, is to be able to understand that you're not as free as you think. I want to channel my inner youth worker and take you back to 1999. Actually, I was was among the youth then, age 16, when the film The Matrix hit the cinemas, and we were all captivated by it. If you haven't seen the series, don't bother, just watch the first one, it's it's an absolutely extraordinary film. But in the film, Neo grows up in... He's grown up in the Matrix. He's grown up in a world that just looks like any, like the world we live in now, except that he has a hunch that something's not right. Like, a, like an itch that you can't quite scratch. You know it's there, but you don't know where it is. And he begins to agitate, and he's not sure what's going on, and he's, he's sort of digging around, trying to understand. He's experiencing these deja vus, and stuff is happening. He can't quite get what's going on. And then he meets Morpheus, and in this, this legendary encounter in cinema, Morpheus sits him down and offers him a choice. He says, you can take the red pill or the blue pill. You take the blue pill, you go back on with your life as though we'd never spoken. You take the red pill and you take a journey into truth and you understand why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And Neo, of course, the film would be a very short film if he took the blue pill. He takes the red pill 
and he descends into the journey of learning and knowledge, and he discovers that he's been living inside the matrix, a computer simulation in which all humans live in these suspended cocoons with their brains connected to a computer so that everything you're seeing and experiencing is actually an artificial simulation. There are philosophers, by the way, who believe that that is the situation in which humanity exists right now. I'm not I'm not siding with them in any way, shape, or form, but I, I think that they are, there's obviously a real problem. How, the question is, how would you know? How would you know? How could you prove if it weren't true? And it shows you that there are limits to freedom. Freedom is only real when you can discern the limits. And you may not be as free as you are, as you think you are, I should say. And the point is this. Yes, you may be free in the modern Western world to do what you want. But why do you want what you want? Aren't you in some way constrained so that you don't really know where your desires and aims and goals come from? or What it is that establishes the good life in your imagination? And what Paul tells us here is when your eyes are open, when you take the red pill, you can begin to see the powers that constrain you. And he describes the world and the devil and the flesh. He says that the world is there. He says we are following the course of the world. And we're used to these days speaking of the language of systemic or structural evil. But what the Bible has said, it's been saying this all along, says the whole world is a system or a structure that imposes its ways of thinking and feeling and acting upon us. And it's impossible to step outside of that. There are no independent, objective, autonomous ways of thinking. You were born and raised within a system that you're not even aware is there. It's like the old joke of two goldfish swimming along and then an older goldfish swims towards them and says, hey, nice day, how's the water? And they swim along, they look at each other with confused faces and say, what the hell is water? And that's the sense that you are in something you're not even conscious is there. You know, the atheists these days love to describe themselves as free thinkers without realizing, of course, that they are just as much the products of cultural forces, of, of all the social constructs of the day and age in which we live that has made them into what they are. And the Bible says you are following the course of the world. You had no choice. It also says that there's another thing here, which is the power of Satan. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. And he's not describing here, when he describes Satan as ruler, he's not describing overt Satanism. I know that there is such a thing. There are people who consciously and deliberately practice such a thing. But what he's rather describing is the subtlety of spiritual blindness. It's described by Paul in one of his letters like this. He says, in their case, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And this is what the Bible says is the reason why many people can hear the gospel but not see its truth and its relevance to them. Or why it is that you as a Christian might be involved in the task of telling people about Jesus and it falls on deaf ears and blind eyes. It says it isn't just a natural human intellectual quest. This is a spiritual thing that we are dealing with here. We're following the course of the world, but also there is the power of the prince of the air, as Paul calls him, the spiritual power that constrains people's ability to see truth. I know that there are people in our world who live in nations where the access to truth is limited, 
you know, what it means to live in a free country, the planks, the, the pillars of freedom are an elected democracy, an independent judiciary or the law courts that hold those rulers to account as well as everyone else and are not, not kowtowing to the rulers. But the third plank is a free media, the press having the freedom to report on the things that they investigate freely. And yet many people in our world live in nations where the media is not free and where they are told what they are allowed to report and not report. And from the outside in, you look in and think, how can the people in that country believe that? How can they believe that a war is a special operation? How can they believe that a concentration camp is a re-education center? How can they believe that? But of course, when you're in it, you don't know what you don't know. And if it's true on that level, it's, it can be true. Can you not accept that it can be true at the spiritual level also? That there can be such a thing as a spiritual blindness that it makes it, in it impossible to see the truth except by a work of God in your heart. The devil and the world. And then he says another part here is the, the flesh, which is just the way of speaking of yourself. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions, desires, or lusts, that word means, of our flesh, or of our body, of our, ourselves, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, or the rationalizations of the mind. And what he's saying here, just in case you imagine that the evil of the human that humans live in and practice is an evil that comes from outside them and it poses, imposes itself upon them from the world or from the devil. It says, no, it's not just that. It's also an evil that emerges from inside you. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in his, his novel, The Gulag Archipelago, he said that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. One of the reasons why we are so polarized in our day and age is because we like to set things up in a polarized way. Us versus them. The evil is them and the good is us and there's a wall between us. And Solzhenitsyn says, uh-uh, the things are not so simple, friend. The line isn't between you and them. The line is in you. Yes, there are good impulses implanted into you by God, but there's this presence, this ever, ever powerful presence of the lust of the flesh. And if you cannot control yourself, then in what sense are you free, is the question. Are you not a slave? And so Paul says you were dead, you're a slave, and he also sees you were condemned. Because this is how he brings it to a conclusion. He says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And what he's speaking here, of course, is the anger of God himself against sin and against us. Now, this seems, again, to me, to be something that runs directly against what people think about and imagine is true of God. They say of God that he is, some people think of him as distant and aloof. How could he be angry? Because he's just basically far away. Some people think of God as benevolent but senile. A crazy old man. Some people think of him as having no personal qualities at all. He's just a, 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 a spirit, just a force. Forces don't feel love or anger. And there are certain religions that to speak of the higher power in that way. And you know, there are many people, Christians among them, who think that God is not capable of anger against us because he's like 
a doting grandfather. And anyone knows that it's the parents' job to do the discipline. Grandparents just spoil the grandchildren. And God cannot feel any anger towards us because all he has is unconditional love. And there are many Christians who think that way about God. And to a large extent, I believe, that explains the impotence of the Western church. We have no concept of the fear of God. We have no awareness of his hatred against sin. And here, crashing against all those narratives is what Paul says here. We were by nature... In other words, you were born into this situation of being a child of wrath. That you were the object, in a sense, of God's hatred. Now, I know that some of you think, well, doesn't that seem to contradict what the Bible has to say about God's love? And of course, Paul immediately goes on to saying, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, how can God love and feel anger towards us at one and the same time? And I don't think it's very difficult to get your head around that. I know that when I see children misbehaving, I generally feel indifferent. However, if it's my own children, my love compels me to feel a measure of anger. I want to bring correction. And anger is not mutually exclusive with love. The time when you see Jesus expressing anger, when he is in the temple, whipping the money changers and the, the, the traders who are there, exploiting the people, the poor people. You see Jesus driving them out and saying this is meant to be a house of prayer. I don't know anyone who's ever read that and thought less of Jesus. When you read it, you feel your admiration for Jesus increasing because you see another facet of who he is. He's not only compassion and love, he also is righteous anger. And if you can accept that of Jesus in that moment, that Christ, in theory at least, can have a righteous anger against wickedness and injustice, does it not make sense that he could feel that towards me? Now, friends, if this is the biblical diagnosis of the problem, death, slavery, and condemnation, I believe that you have to, we must start with the diagnosis. Either because you're not yet a Christian, you must understand your relationship towards God, or because you are a Christian, and the degree to which you love Jesus will in a large, to a large extent be determined by your appreciation of your condition before you met him. And it seems to me that it's only as we understand this diagnosis of what our condition was without Christ that then we can fully appreciate what it means that Christ has become our substitute. Think about each of these things in relation to Jesus. If you and I were born spiritually dead and alienated from God, Christ was the only man ever born who was fully alive to God, who experienced no alienation from God, but unbroken enjoyment of fellowship with his own Father. That's the description we have of Jesus in the Gospels. So he says, for example, this about himself. He says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who was fully alive to God. And yet, what did he experience? He experienced death upon the cross. He entered into death. 
the death that you and I deserve, in order that he could rescue us from it. And he says just a verse earlier in John 5, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead, that's you and me, will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Christ, the only alive man, descended into death in order to give life to all who follow in his steps. Then think about our condition of slavery. If you and I are born in this situation of being under the oppressive control of the world and the devil and the flesh, Jesus is the only man who has been born truly free. And as you see him living your life, you see him unconstrained by the world. He goes his own way. Unconstrained by the temptations and the oppressions and the lies of the devil. And without being ruled by his own flesh. By, there is no sinful nature inside him. So that although he experiences temptation, he always triumphs. Jesus is the only man who ever lived who was truly free. And yet what happened at the cross? He experienced something like slavery voluntarily there because he was bound by sinful men. He was flogged and he was crucified. And so he became oppressed by the world. He became oppressed by Satan. And he became oppressed by the sins of men. In order that he could be our substitute on the cross and redeem us and give freedom to us who believe in him. Which is why he says in John chapter 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. But then he says, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. He came to liberate slaves from prison and bring you into a state of freedom from slavery. And then think about his substitution in terms of condemnation. If you and I are born in a state of being by nature children of wrath, Christ is the only man ever who was born without the Father feeling any anger towards him. In fact, the Father's verdict of him that's spoken twice over him is, you are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. The Lord had nothing but pleasure in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet what happens upon the cross is you see all the anger and wrath of God against the human sin and wickedness and pride and evil poured into and focused upon the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Like taking a great magnifying glass and focusing the power of the sun on one radiant beam upon that man as he hung there upon the cross so that he absorbs the wrath of God in his experience of death. And exhaust God's anger against sin. And the punishment that he experienced on the cross. That he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In order that you and I can know nothing but the joy and pleasure of a loving father. Even though you don't deserve it. So that what Paul said of us in Romans 8, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That situation of knowing nothing but the Father's love is a situation purchased for you by Jesus upon the cross. And you can never receive the truth of what happened upon the cross unless you first accept the reality of life without Jesus. And so we have to come and bow. We have to come and worship our Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the love with which he loved us,
He made us alive.